host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 5 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying a hot matcha latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew, and let's get into the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrup. 27-year-old Jody Hoosentrup disappeared on June 27th of 1995 on her way to anchor the morning news at KIMT-TV in Mason City, Iowa. This is still one of Iowa's highest-profile unsolved cases with no answers to this day, and it has essentially become a cold case at this point, although people are trying to raise new awareness for Jody, especially her friends and family. Jody was born on June 5th of 1968, and she was born and raised in Long Prairie, Minnesota. She was the youngest daughter of Maurice and Imogene Hoosentrup, and growing up, she was pretty active and popular. She excelled at golf in high school, and she actually won the state Class A tournament with her team in both 1985 and 1986. She was really good. She had a lot of friends, and she built a lot of strong relationships in her youth, and many of those people are still looking for answers in her case to this day. Her friends have described her as a big dreamer, even in high school, and her ultimate goal was to be famous. After graduation, she attended St. Cloud State University, where she studied mass communications and speech communication, earning her bachelor's degree from there in 1990. And she joined the school's TV network when she was in college, where she was an integral member of the team, and she really enjoyed her time there. The time that she spent there confirmed her love for journalism and for being on the news, and also affirmed her dreams of becoming a reporter when she graduated. Her first job after graduation was with Northwest Airlines, but she quickly got back into the world of journalism, and she began her broadcasting career with CBS affiliate KGAN in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where she was the station's Iowa City Bureau Chief. She then returned to Minnesota for a job at ABC affiliate KSAX in Alexandria, and she later returned to Iowa for her position at CBS affiliate KIMT in Mason City, where she was awarded the anchor job for the morning and afternoon shows, which was really exciting for her. And the producers were also really excited about having her there, even though they were a little bit concerned at first that her Minnesota accent was going to be too strong for the air, and they even talked about getting some speech therapy for her. However, people who viewed her morning broadcasts found her Midwestern accent comforting and relatable, and a lot of people in the community referred to Jody as kind of like just the girl next door. She's been described as being outgoing and very beautiful, and she was on track to achieving her childhood dream of becoming a top news anchor. The day that Jody went missing was June 27th of 1995. At the time, she was living in a second-floor apartment at the Key Apartment Complex in Mason City, where she had moved in November of 1993. On the morning of June 27th, she had apparently overslept, and she was supposed to be at KIMT at around 3 a.m. to start her shift as a news anchor, because she was on the 6 a.m. newscast, and she usually arrived at around 3.30 in the morning to get ready for the day. The day before, she had spent some time at the Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament and dinner. As I mentioned, she was an avid golfer. And she left the Mason City Country Club just before 8 p.m., then calling a friend in Mississippi at 8.24 p.m. 
When Jody didn't show up for her shift that morning, KIMT-TV assistant producer Amy Coons woke her with a call at around 4.10 a.m. And on the call, Joni said that she was running late because she had overslept, but that she would be right into work for the 6 a.m. newscast in the studio, which was only about a mile away from her home. Amy stated later that nothing sounded out of the ordinary on this phone call, and she also mentioned that Jody had been late before, so this wasn't completely unusual, and Amy would usually call Jody at around 4 a.m. if she hadn't shown up to the station yet. It's also very easy to assume that someone who has to be into work at 3 a.m. every morning would sleep in every once in a while. I know that I would. But on this day, Jody still hadn't arrived by 5.30, so Amy called her apartment landline, and this time there was no answer. At 6 a.m., when Jody still had not arrived, Amy Coons anchored the 6 a.m. newscast in her place, and Amy wrote and produced this newscast by herself that morning. The newscast ended at around 7 a.m., and Amy then asked a co-worker to call the police to do a wellness check on Jody. She had been late before, but she had never missed a newscast, so this was definitely starting to become unusual. The first phone call to be made to the police was at 7.13 a.m. from this KIMT-TV co-worker, and Jody's apparent abduction had happened only about 20 minutes after Amy's first call that morning at 4.10, and it happened next to her car, which was parked only 12 feet away from the entrance to her apartment building. There was a struggle, and during it, the key to Jody's red 1991 Mazda Miata was slightly bent, and her red heels, blow dryer, earrings, and hairspray were found scattered across the ground. There were also drag marks that were found near her car, which are a further indication of a struggle, and police believe that Jody's key was bent possibly because she had used it as a weapon against her attacker. There were no eyewitnesses to the attack on Jody, and no one from the apartment complex called the police that morning. However, a resident did later call in to police to report that they had heard a scream around the time Jody was abducted. And this is something that's really important to mention because this happens often in cases of abduction where the bystander effect can be deadly. Most likely, the residents of Jody's apartment building had assumed that someone else would be calling the police when the scream rang out. And as a result of this, no one ended up picking up the phone. So there is no telling what could have happened if someone actually did call the police. The first NCPD officer arrived at Jody's apartment complex at 7.16 a.m. and found no signs of Jody when he checked her second floor apartment. The officer found the concerning signs of a struggle next to Jody's car, which was still parked in the lot. Despite the scene outside of the apartment, officers noted that the apartment itself looked just like the apartment of someone who was about to leave for work for the day, and noted that nothing out of the ordinary was going on inside. The MCPD police chief, along with several officers, arrived shortly after to investigate the scene, although there was very little forensic evidence to be found or collected. According to retired MCPD investigator Frank Stearns, a partial palm print was lifted from Jody's car, and a strand of hair was discovered, but Stearns did not reveal if there was a root attached to the hair that any testing could be done on, and it also is not known if those pieces of evidence were even related to her disappearance. They very well could have been just from any kind of daily activity. A witness did approach police on the scene, saying that he had seen a suspicious white van near Jody's car around the time she went missing that morning. 
And mid-morning, Jody's friend John Van Sice, along with a friend of his, arrived at the Key apartment, and police say that Van Sice told them he was the last person to see Jody alive. Van Sice is one of the most suspicious characters in this investigation, so it's important to note that he was on the scene so quickly that morning because they actually lived in the same apartment complex. And it is not known if Van Sice knew that Jody lived there before he moved into the complex, but if he had, that would definitely add an extra layer of suspicion to the bubble surrounding him. He claims that she had stopped by his Mason City duplex the night before to watch a video of a surprise birthday party he had helped organize for Jody on June 10th. The party had been held at Sully's Bar in a building in Clear Lake, Minnesota, and this building was owned by a friend of Jody's and Van Sice's. This was a businessman named Alden Stecker, and Stecker's former wife had shot the video. Sources say that it was given to Van Sice the day before Jody disappeared, which was the night that they watched it. He said that the two had sat down and watched a video together and had a good laugh at it, and police told Van Sice to bring the video down to their station, where he was interviewed by investigators. That same day, search dogs were brought to the scene to attempt to trace Jody's scent. The dogs searched the area around her apartment, and police also included the Winnebago River, which ran behind the apartment complex in their search, but they uncovered no clues or leads during their searches on that day. Police also did a full search of the newsroom, also finding nothing that provided them with any evidence or clues. And that night, the KINT-TV ran a story about Jody reporting her missing to the public. And immediately, the community was extremely concerned about her and very heartbroken when the news broke that she had disappeared. Police wasted no time starting their investigation, and they immediately began to assemble a timeline leading up to Jody's disappearance. She had spent the weekend before she disappeared, which was June 23rd to June 25th, on a water skiing trip to Iowa City with Van Sice, her friends Ani Cruz and Tammy Baker, and Van Sice's son Trent, who was in college in Iowa City at the time. They had all stayed at Trent's apartment, where Jody shared a room with Tammy. The two were really good friends, and they had met years earlier working as reporters in Iowa City together. The weekend before that, which would have been June 17th and 18th, Tammy had actually come to stay with Jody at her Mason City apartment. And Tammy said they spent time with Van Sice and other friends in Clear Lake boating and dancing. Jody's last entry in her personal journal was dated the previous Sunday, June 25th, and she talked about how much fun she had had water skiing on Van Sice's boat with all of her friends that weekend. Van Sice had actually named the boat after Jody, although her name was never actually painted on it, and the two of them have been noted to have a pretty weird relationship. He was 22 years older than her, and he was heavily scrutinized after her disappearance, although he did tell the media that he took a polygraph, and he said he passed with, quote, flying colors. Despite the polygraph, many people have expressed their suspicions about Van Sice in connection with Jody's case. Like I said, they had a fairly strange relationship. It wasn't romantic, at least in Jody's eyes. Van Sice actually claims that he viewed Jody as a daughter, and it's thought that Jody felt the same way about him. Police discovered that Jody became friends with Van Sice while he was in a pretty rough place in his life, possibly because she felt sorry for him. He had been going through a divorce, and he had also been court-ordered to have an intoxilac, one of those breathalyzer tests, 
in his car after a drunk driving arrest. Jody brought him into her friend group as he didn't have many friends at the time, and clearly they spent a lot of time together, especially in the months leading up to her disappearance. And Jody's other friends have since expressed that they did feel a little bit odd about it, but they accepted him into the group because of Jody. Her friends have said that they got the impression that Van Sites was romantically interested in Jody, but that she was not, and that the two of them were very much not on the same page about the nature of their relationship. The primary theory among friends and family with Van Sice is that he had perhaps expressed to Jody that he was interested in her, and she turned him down, resulting in some sort of altercation or otherwise, and he acted out by physically harming her, attacking her, kidnapping her, killing her. He does continue to deny any involvement, and he has never been arrested or charged in connection with the case, although he continues to be the prime suspect in most people's eyes, and he is still under investigation. Van Syce does actually have an alibi for this morning. A friend of his, LaDonna Woodford, testified that Van Syce was home when she called him at around 6 a.m. on June 27th, and that they went for a neighborhood walk. She was the one that was present with Van Syce at the crime scene that morning, although I will say that as an alibi, this does seem rather convenient. Another primary theory is that Jody was being stalked or that someone was following her. Before her disappearance in October of 1994, Jody had reported to the MCPD that she had been made uncomfortable by a person in a small, newer white truck that she thought could have possibly been watching her. There have been conflicting reports over the years from investigators and officials that this truck was actually black. However, in 2020, an obtained copy of that 1994 police report confirmed that the truck was white. And police did look into this at the time and then after she disappeared, but the truck and driver have never been identified. Jody had also told some of her friends, along with a self-defense instructor, in the months before she disappeared that she was concerned she might have been being followed but police have remained skeptical about the idea of her having possibly a stalker who had abducted her. The self-defense destructor, whose name was Sunny Uno, said that Jody was concerned about going to work in the dark, since she was leaving at around 3 o'clock every morning, but that she didn't share any details about who she may have thought was following her. According to the website that has been made for Jody, which is findjody.com, she would have been really easy to find, her home address, apartment unit, and phone number were all listed in the public phone directory. On top of this, she also had the same work schedule every day, and she made frequent references to her social and community event plans during her newscasts, so it would be pretty easy to figure out where she was at any given hour of the day. Jody's friends and family have also expressed concern that someone could have taken advantage of Jody's friendly nature. She was really outgoing, she would talk to anyone, she was one of those people who could strike up a conversation with a stranger and would take any amount of time out of her day to get to know them. She was also very trusting. One of the suspects who police interviewed in connection with her case was Tom Corsicaden, who was a serial rapist from Minnesota who was in the general area at the time. He was interviewed by police about Jody, but he was cleared after this interview. With no answers in November of 1995, feeling kind of desperate, Jody's family went to California to seek out three different psychics, but nothing came of this. 
and on May 4th of 1996, a group of about 100 volunteers went to do an additional search, and they decided they were going to place little red flags next to anything that they thought could be relevant. Police went back to look at the spots that had been flagged, but they concluded that there was nothing useful there and nothing related to Jody's case. On January 26th of 1998, an investigative reporter at WCCO-TV in Minneapolis named Caroline Lowe was reporting on a crime spree that was happening in the area. She was covering a man named Tony Jackson who had been accused of sexually assaulting four women within an 18-day span, and Caroline Lowe thought that Tony Jackson could possibly be connected with Jody's disappearance. He had a history of stalking, and he was living within two blocks of Jody's apartment at the time that she went missing. Those who knew Jackson have said that he had the tendency to snap and become suddenly violent when he was angry. At the time, he was attending North Iowa Community College, where he had actually become interested in broadcasting, so he was spending a lot of time watching the news and studying news anchors, so it's very likely that he would have come across Jody considering the proximity to her news station. He was interviewed by police, however, he was officially cleared on May 5th of 1995, and he's currently serving life in prison for his other offenses, and he does maintain his innocence in this case. With no clear leads and with no suspects, Jody was officially declared dead in May of 2001. At that time, she would have been only 32 years old. And it was her family who had her pronounced dead in order to settle her estate which is a very common occurrence in cases such as this, and it in no way means that her family has given up on finding answers or that they've given up on Jody. Unfortunately, it just happens to be that in cases like this, when someone is missing for so long, you have to settle the financial side of things, but I don't want it to be misconstrued as her family has given up or her friends has given up. They are actively still looking for her. Because there is so little evidence in this case, I do want to get in some more recent developments. So in 2008, a copy of Jody's 84-page personal journal was mailed anonymously to a reporter at the Globe Gazette in Mason City. A police investigation revealed that this was sent by the wife of the former MCPD chief, David Ellingson, whose name was Cheryl. Cheryl had previously worked for the newspaper, but no motive has ever been revealed for why she did this. Over the years, in connection with Jody's case, two federal grand juries have reportedly been convened, but no indictments have resulted or been handed down by either grand jury. But Van Sice is still very much a suspect in the eyes of police, and in March 2017, he was subpoenaed by a federal grand jury in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He drove from his home in Phoenix, Arizona to provide a DNA sample, fingerprints, and also palm prints, likely to compare that with the palm prints found on the Miata. It is interesting to note that he moved to Phoenix very quickly after his polygraph test regarding Jody's disappearance, which has definitely made people very suspicious. And to add another layer to that, it also made it very difficult for police to continue looking into him as a suspect just because of the distance. However, no charges came as a result of this grand jury. 
But also in March of 2017, the MCPD obtained a search warrant from a judge in Cerro Gordo County to place GPS trackers on two vehicles that are connected with Van Syce, neither of which he owned in 1995, but it can be assumed that they were just trying to do some general surveillance on him. The chief of police, Jeff Brinkley, told 48 Hours correspondent Jim Axelrod that the searches didn't produce any evidence and that the search warrant affidavits for the searches are going to remain sealed, so it isn't known what probable cause investigators gave the judge to get him to approve those searches. But this is also pretty common in ongoing cases, that those affidavits would remain sealed in order to not compromise any further investigation. The last update in this case comes from 2019, when a fine Jody billboard in Mason City that had been put up to help generate leads for the case was vandalized on New Year's Eve. The name of a retired investigator and the words Machine Shed had been spray-painted on the board. Police did a four-day investigation into this, which revealed no motive or answers for the vandalism, and that is still not known. As of now, Jody would have turned 53 on June 5th of 2021. Jody's network of hope was created by friends and family as a way to keep her spirit alive, and the foundation has given away over $40,000 in scholarships since its start in 2005 and has also dedicated a memorial to Jody at a golf course. It's a granite bench on the 10th hole at Long Prairie County Country Club in her Minnesota hometown. Journalists Gary Peterson and Josh Benson created the website findjody.com in 2003, and they still release podcast episodes related to the investigation, doing different interviews with people involved, family members, and friends. And they are very much just trying to keep Jody's spirit alive, trying to get her name out there, and trying to get more attention brought to her case. This case is heartbreaking in so many ways, and Jody was such a bright light in her community, as well as still in the very early stages of achieving her dreams when she went missing. The only thing that we can hope for at this point is that her family will one day receive some answers, and I am going to leave the Find Jody website and other resources to support them in the show notes at crimebistro.com. So I encourage you to go visit those and be as active of a true crime listener as is available to you. All other sources and media will be listed in the show notes as well if you're interested in reading further about Jody's case. And I encourage that you do because her friends and family are still trying very hard to find her and I'm sure that they would appreciate any of the help that you could give them. And with that, this episode is coming to a close. So thank you for listening to our story this week, and as always, until next time.